Hello and welcome to the Father's House Church. We're so glad that you're here today. We hope that you are encouraged by today's message from our lead pastor, Greg Fraser. We're in Acts chapter 21, and I, today I'm going to preach on something I've never seen before in all the times I've read the book of Acts. And uh, that's kind of interesting to me, but I hope it's interesting to you. Um, let's pray, and then I'm going to start in Acts 21, and we're going to go through some, some Scripture. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we need eyes to see and ears to hear today. Holy Spirit, come and teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Lord, look into the pockets of our heart and reveal some things to us today. Help us to be open to your thoughts, Father. And we just say thank you because you're so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Well, Acts chapter 21, I'm going to be starting at verse 17, and we're going to read a portion of Scripture, and then we're going to read a little bit more a little bit later. But let me start as we talk about being zealous to a fault. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were there present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Now, let me set the context of this verse, and and we need to dig a little bit of history out to understand this. And so I'm going to go through that. The context of this verse In the book of Acts, we know that Paul was sent to the Gentiles. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means he was very legalistically uh, uh, bound to the law of God. And then suddenly God, he encounters God and he begins to be transformed by that encounter. And now he's gone to the Gentiles and he's kind of the apostle to the Gentiles and he's preaching to the Gentiles, but he's returned to Jerusalem now. And this is, uh, we're going to look at them in a moment. This is about 80, 80 37, and, uh, sorry, 57. And it's about 12 years before Jerusalem is actually destroyed. But you need to understand the context of the book of Acts is written in about 8070 to 8080. And so Jerusalem has already been destroyed. People reading this story... No, they're reading it, but yet the place that they're reading about no longer exists, okay? So let's go through that with that understanding. Now, there's about 60 to 70,000 souls, according to Jewish historian Josephus, the citizens of Jerusalem, and they consisted of three main groups, as he wrote, the Zealots, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. He doesn't mention the Jewish Christians, which is surprising because they number in the tens of thousands, we're going to find out, 
And it's incredible when you think about that, even at the smallest number when you understand that, that Jewish Christians were likely included among the count with the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Sadducees. They're part of these groups. Now, here's an artist's depiction. I think we have a picture of the fall of Jerusalem. You have to understand, Jerusalem was utterly, utterly destroyed. And then the next picture you're going to see is called the Arch of Titus. So the general Titus from the Roman Empire came, and you see he's carrying the menorah there. This is actually in Rome. It's actually a real, uh, you can go and see this picture. They're carrying away all the treasures of the temple. So not only is Jerusalem destroyed, but the temple in which they worshiped was also destroyed. So the church of Jesus, the Jesus movement, we'll call it, in Jerusalem is far more than 10,000 Jesus followers. Now think about it. There's 65,000 people in Jerusalem, and well over 10,000 of them are saying they're following Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Passion Translation says it this way in that verse. You should know, brothers, that there are many tens of thousands of Jews who have embraced the faith and are passionately keeping the law of Moses. And within a decade, the church is going to be scattered of that statement. Within a decade, they're going to be totally dispelled from that place. And within a few decades, the church is no longer defined in Christendom by their Jewish roots, but by the Gentiles that have become saved. But you have to understand, guys, this is a massive, massive church in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was zealous to a fault. Incredible. When you think about it, uh, they say a church is a mega church when it influences 4% of its community. Well, this Jerusalem church was well over 16%. <laughs> okay? So, guys, this, this Jerusalem church was big. It was the biggest church within Christendom at the time. But yet these people were zealous to a fault. You see, they have a zeal, a jealousy, a fervency, but not for the gospel, but for the law, the temple, and their nation. Now, there's nothing wrong with the spirit of the law, trying to live that way and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to go through some things about these different peoples. Remember, the Christians are numbered among these three groups. The Pharisees, they were called the separated ones. That's what, literally what Pharisee means. They were separated from the world and separated unto the law. They loved the law, and they, they thought they had life through the law. The letter of the law came, and they, they realized that it was through a person that when Jesus Christ came, and many of them began to believe. But these Pharisees, these separated ones, remember when they would, uh, I, I've told you this in the past, but it's interesting, the Pharisees would stand in the temple and stand in the synagogues, and they would say, who wants to be yoked to the law. And that's what they would actually stand up and declare. And then people that wanted to become a Pharisee would say, I want to be yoked to the law, and I'm going to obey the law, and that's what they would do. So you can imagine when Jesus, remember what Jesus said? You know, be yoked to me. Not to a law, be yoked to me. 
What an insult that would have been for the Pharisees when Jesus stood in the temple and stood in the synagogues and said that to these guys. You who are burdened and heavy laden, don't be yoked to the law. Be yoked to me. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. Now we'll give you rest. And so that's the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, they were like the ruling elite. They, were, they loved the national identity of the Jewish people. They weren't so concerned about the afterlife, but they lived blessed in this life. That was their concern. Man, we are the chosen people. Let's be blessed in this life. And so you've got the Pharisee crowd, and then you've got the Sadducee crowd. They're wanting to be blessed in this life. And then, you, then, you've, got, then you've got the last crowd, the zealots. And they were zealot, zealous for the kingdom of God. They were zealous for the reign of God in this world. They were zealous for... Uh, God to come and to reign and rule and to set them free from Jewish op- or from a Roman oppression and to be delivered from that. And so we see within these three groups, there are tens of thousands of people that are Christians. <laughs> That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So they're mixing. Are you following what's happening? They're mixing their old. They're mixing their old stuff with this new revelation, and this is the biggest church in Christendom, that's an incredible thought. And yet they were not really connected to their Gentile brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, they saw themselves as very separate from their Gentile brothers and sisters. That's you and me, by the way. And what separated them? Well, their obedience to the law. See, the Gentiles only had three laws, like, you know, God, basically the, the leadership of the church back in Acts chapter 15 said, abstain from food, uh, sacrifice to idols, you know, sexual immorality, and don't eat anything that has blood in it. That's it. They, they, they took the entire 10, you know, the, the, the literally hundreds and hundreds of laws of the Old Testament, and they boiled it down for the Gentiles to only have to live up to three. That's it. So they saw themselves a little bit superior. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay, everybody's with me, okay. So their Old Testament, their obedience to the law in the Old Testament, you know. Now remember, let's not be too hard on them because they didn't have the New Testament. (laughs) Remember, the New Testament is not codified yet. In other words, it's not combined and put together as a book yet. So really, they were trying to understand this new covenant through the revelations that were in the Old Testament. Now, they might have had fragments of gospels, and they might have had fragments of teachings from Peter or from Paul, but that's all they would have had. And so the Old Testament was their revelation of this new covenant. Now, it's in there, but it's hard to discern and find out. So they're still kind of connecting to the old way of doing things. So it's not impossible, but that's where they were. And they loved the temple. So they loved the law and they loved the temple. The temple was the place where God dwelled. And this was the heart of the religious life of every single Jew. And so we have to understand the temple, by the way, in Jerusalem, the second temple, Herod's temple, was beautiful. As a matter of fact, Vespabian, who was the ruler or the uh, um, Caesar at that time asked Titus not to destroy the temple. 
He actually asked them not to do it. It's recorded, but he still destroyed it because in their fervency, they just destroyed all of Jerusalem. Okay, so they loved the temple. Now, they loved, they loved the law. They loved the temple. This was the heart of the Jewish community and their national identity. This is the third thing. This was the Jewish nation. They were separated and chosen by God to hold the covenants of God and to bring his law or his word to this earth. So those three things, are you guys following me? They saw those three things as them being distinct from every other believer. Now all these Gentiles who were coming to know Christ. Now remember Paul, Paul was converted, a converted Jew who now is going to the Gentiles and bringing the gospel message, the good news to these Gentiles, and the Jews hear about him coming, and they're not happy. Okay? So let's follow the context. This is what's happening. Now, Paul, he's coming, he's ministering, and this is what they said. I'm going to re remind you of what I read earlier. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to their cust our customs. What shall we do? Now, to show the Jewish Christians he was not opposed to the moral teachings of the law, when you go through Acts 21, Paul actually sets himself apart. He shaves his head. He purifies himself, and he's showing, guys, I'm living up to the law. I'm, not, I'm a Jew that's not violating the, your law and your, your customs, but let's follow what happens almost instantly when Paul goes to the temple after he purifies himself and seven days away, and he does all the rituals. Let's follow this. Verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. Are you following it? And besides that, he brought a Greek into the temple and defiled this holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul and dragged him from the temple. Well, they began to beat him. You can read about it later. And they begin to deal with him, but they're deceived. You see, the Jerusalem church was deceived by slander. You see, slander is the action or the crime of making a false spoken statement, damaging a person's reputation. So they're zealous, they're overly zealous for the law, the temple, and the nation. And now they're being deceived by this thing called slander. Now, slander is not a virtue to Jews or to Gentiles. Gossip, gossip, defamation of character. But listen to what it said. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, our law, and this place. What three things were they zealous for? Our people, our law, and the temple. So this is what's happening. Paul never brought a Gentile, by the way, into the temple. 
but they accused him of them and they slandered him and they started a riot that led to Paul's imprisonment and eventual death. In the temple, now that you have to understand this, guys, the temple is this beautiful, incredible temple, but it's got four different chambers. And so there's the outer court, which the Gentiles could not go beyond the outer court. Written on the wall of the outer court, which then moves to the inner court, is literally written on the wall was this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. So if you were a Gentile, you could only get so far. Are you following me? And then you would be confronted by this wall, literally a wall, and literally a sign saying you cannot go any further. The inner court was the place where the Jews could go, but they couldn't go beyond the inner court. You see, the holy place was the next level, and that's only where the priests could go into that place and do the ministry work. And then there was one more court called the Holy of Holies, the fourth level, the deepest place that you could go, and it was only one man once a year. And that was the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Ten Commandments that were kept in this Ark of the Covenant, and, and all these things were there, this beautiful thing, and only this one man, the high priest, would go and sprinkle the blood of atonement once a year. Are you guys following me? And so this was the idea of the temple. This is what was happening. Now, their whole structure and system defined separation and no access to the life of God. This is the story we're in. Are you guys following me? I wanted to set up this whole thing. So Paul comes as the apostle as to the Gentiles, throws everything into a tizzy. Again, he's not opposed to keeping the law, but he's opposed to keeping it as a means of righteousness, as a means of being right with God. No man can keep the law. He talks about in the book of Galatians. So this is what's happened. Now remember, this is so important for you to catch. These Jewish Christians defended. Everything they defended was utterly destroyed within 10 years. Everything. The nation was gone. The temple was gone. They're coming together. The largest church in Christendom was scattered within 10 years. Now, what in the world, Pastor Greg, can we learn from this some 2,000 years later? Glad you asked. Here's the first thing. Be zealous, but for the right things. Augustine is accredited with saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Well, these Jewish Christians did not know that statement, is what I'm trying to tell you. They were zealous for God. They weren't zealous for God in the gospel, but they were zealous for things that no longer existed now. So I'm going to talk to us today just for a minute or two. What unifies the church? If it's not this building, if it's not living in Canada, if it's not the law or the Old Testament, what unifies you and me? Well, there's just a couple things I want to talk about. The first one is this, God. <laughs> God unifies us. 
Ephesians 4 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is the story of God. The gospel that you've been invited into, okay? The story that you've been invited into, guys, is the story of God. It's not your story. As a matter of fact, you bring your broken story into his story, and your story becomes history. Amen? So God is the unifier of the church. So God, which is good news for you and me, because I can't wreck God. As a matter of fact, how many of you know the new covenant, the new covenant is not between you and God? What? Yeah, what do you mean, Pastor Greg? The new covenant is actually between God the Father and God the Son. It's between God the Father and the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ became a man in order to fulfill the law, in order to open the door to a new covenant, and he's inviting you and I in. Now, you want to understand this in practical terms. Think of a marriage, okay? A husband and a wife get married, and they have children, let's say. And now, whether or not they have children is ir irre irrelevant. They've actually formed a covenant. Are you with me? Now, if they have children, those children come and live under that covenant. Are you following me? How many know that's good news? So the blessing of the Lord is upon them under the covenant that they formed in marriage. Now, if their kids rebel and go and blow it and do really dumb things, how many of you know that does not wreck the covenant between the husband and wife? It actually doesn't change it. Amen? So if God the Father and the man Christ Jesus formed a covenant called the new covenant, and Greg Fraser comes and lives under that covenant, and then Greg Fraser is an idiot and he says, oh, I don't really want to live here anymore. I'm going to go do my own thing. How many of you know that doesn't change the covenant? Amen? I can't wreck the new covenant, which is good news because if I was in charge of the old covenant relationship with God, I would have wrecked it in two seconds. Anybody else? If it was between God and me, Greg Fraser, it wouldn't be Adam you'd be talking about. It'd be Greg Fraser, that idiot who did that, who ate the fruit in the garden. You can plug your own name into this equation, by the way. <laughs> Amen? Okay, so we live under a new covenant, a new blessing of God that is between the Father and the man, Christ Jesus, who came to do what we could not do because he was without sin. Okay, okay. I know we're getting, whoo, Pastor Greg, come on back now. Okay, so God, God is the unifier of the church. And here's the second thing, the gospel. 
Romans 10 says, you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. What? Sorry, that's not in there. That's my expression. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not judged by their living up to the law. Not judged by what part of what family they're part of or what nation they're part of. Not judged by whether they're in a temple or whether they're in a good church or a bad church. They're judged by God's relationship with His Son. They've decided to trust God to come into this relationship called the New Covenant, to believe that God would love them enough to forgive their sins, pay the price, make a way for them to live under the blessing of God. How many want to live under the blessing of God? Amen? So that's the gospel. From the uttermost to the guttermost, you can come in. There's a place for you. The door's open. Hallelujah. The kingdom of God is open to every single human being who would call upon, who would trust God, who would say, God, you are enough. God, what you have done through your son, Christ Jesus, and the covenant that you have made, God, I believe you. I believe you, God. I love this, you guys. Jesus removed the barrier <laughs> and gave access to us all. Remember what it said in Ephesians 2.14? This is not going to come up on your screen, but you can look it up. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the wall that was in the temple. <laughs> He's talking about that barrier that said a Gentile can go no further than this. Oh no, God said, no, 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 no. I'm tearing it down. I'm tearing it down. And access to God is open. As a matter of fact, we can go all the way through to the very last part. Remember when Jesus died, the Bible says that the temple curtain was torn in two. From where? From the top to the bottom. And what did it do? It exposed the very glory of God, the holy of holies. And every single human being now has access to God. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> what a message! What a hope. What a Hallelujah. What unites every Christian around the world? God and the gospel. Not I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> Not I'm a Pentecostal. Not I'm a Baptist. Not any of that. God and the gospel. That's it. That's all I got. No, I got some more. We'll keep going. <laughs> you should stop now, Pastor. No, it's good. It's all good. Jesus came to remove the wall and the barrier to all mankind, you guys. He's the star of the show, and he invites us into the story to bring our broken, desperate lives into his story and gives us a new story and a significant role to play. 
Jesus has raised up the valleys and lowered the mountaintops. And he's made a level playing ground for all. Can you believe this? He used the ultra-religious Jews and the irreligious Gentiles to show the magnitude of his grace and love and mercy and goodness and kindness and openness. What a story. What a God. Hallelujah. You see, the Jewish Christians were seeing the temple as the thing worth defending. But remember, anybody reading the book of Acts knows the temple's gone. It's gone. The temple was a building. It's no longer the focus of the new covenant. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Do you not know that you are now the temple of God? And that His Spirit, the Spirit of God now dwells in you? What? Yeah. You are the most incredible people on the planet right now. Why? Because you've trusted God and you've invited God into your life. And now you are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Now, let me just read another scripture. It's not going to come on your screen, but read it. You can read it yourself. 1 Peter 2.5. Let me read it to you. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, the people of God. And once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen to this. This is amazing. We who are in Christ, we are the temple we are the priesthood. We are the nation. The three things the Jews defended and held on to that were now gone are yours. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that astounding? The gospel unites us all. But you see, we, like our Jewish predecessors, may have things we're trying to defend that we think are essential for believers to look like or to be like. Now, I'm not picking on these things. I'm just saying if they are elevated above God and the gospel, then you have a problem. Maybe you're a little bit of a Pharisee and you think that holiness in the Word is all I need. And that's my sign that I'm really following God. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. They're awesome but be careful the position you put them in. Maybe you're a Sadducee that only focuses on prosperity in this life. That's all it's about, man. Everything else, who cares? Maybe you're a zealot. You're focusing on fighting the government. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you, there's all three of these in this church right now. Okay. <laughs> Just, you're there. They're there. You see, this group saw the Gentile Christians far less than their brand of Christianity. 
What brand of Christianity are you defending? Maybe you're Protestant or Pentecostal or Baptist or Catholic. Maybe you're irreligious or you're ultra-religious. Maybe you have a different doctrinal stance than us. But I'm going to tell you, God and the gospel is bigger than your theological limitations. Hmm. Are there not essential doctrines of the church, Pastor Greg? Yes, there are essential doctrines of the church. But how many of you believed the essential doctrines of the church when you first got saved? I fought with my pastor over several essential doctrines of the church coming out of a Catholic background. But you know what he did? He loved me in spite of it. Dang. And he said things like, that's interesting, Greg. Why don't you pray about that and ask the Lord? He didn't say, you loser. You need to believe A, B, C, and D, and we'll get to E, F, G later on, loser. No, he never said that once. Okay, how many of you need to hear just this one word? Some of you need to start practicing theological hospitality. Maybe you don't know everything. How many, anybody else acknowledge maybe you don't know everything with Pastor Greg? Oh, thank you for the six people that acknowledged they did not know everything. <laughs> I feel like justified now. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I, I argued with God about the total depravity of my life. That's one of the essential doctrines of the church, the total depravity of man, that we are sinners to the core. There's nothing good in us except which, that which God changes. I argued with my pastor. I'm like, I am a good guy. God's actually lucky to have me. How many of you know that's not a wise statement to make into the heavens? Amen? Because then God shows you, oh, you're a sinner. You're a sinner, Greg. How many get the Trinity? This is an essential doctrine of the church. I told my pastor, I totally get the Trinity, and I tried to explain it to him. I said, this is what it means. It's like an egg. And then I went through this whole thing about an egg and a yolk and, a, and, a, and, a, and water. And I said, I get the Trinity. You guys don't get it. I still don't get the Trinity. It's been... 30 plus years, I'm like, hmm, that's a mystery I'm going to leave with God until the day I see Him, I think. That's okay. How many can do that? Okay, here, here's my question. Where are you zealously hanging on to something that you need to let go of and trust God with? Where are you demanding others to change before you accept and love them where are your barriers Christ may want to tear down? Where are you building walls in your temple and saying you cannot come past this point? Where might your zeal be misplaced right now? I 
can't answer that for you. Amen? Okay, Pastor Greg, I'm going on vacation soon, so you're going to get better preachers than me coming up. You're good. Here's the next one. Some, you're all going to get hit by this one. Ready? So num- number one is just, where might your zeal be misplaced? Number two is this, guard against slander always. Whew. It's amazing that the church in our story, the church, the church, the church in our story embraces slanderous accusations against the Apostle Paul. Hmm. They looked to defend their narrow beliefs and everyone outside of those beliefs needed to be dealt with. When they grabbed Paul and the, the guards rescued Paul, the Romans, the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. How many of you know we're living in a time of half-truth, no-truth, accusation and slander all over the place? Everywhere. It's astounding to me. How can we slander-proof our lives? Not from things spoken against us, but things that we might speak and believe. That's really what the number one thing is. I'm going to give you a couple quick thoughts. Here's the first thought. Choose words of life in every conversation you have about others. Well, that's Bible. Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Wow. Is every conversation you have a benefit to those who listen? What a statement. Do not let unwholesome talk, that which is not good for the whole, Okay? We'll just leave that there. Let the Holy Spirit, this is what we prayed at the very beginning, let the Holy Spirit dig. Okay, we're just, we're going on. Here we go. Choose words of life in every conversation about others. Change or leave conversation that slander others. Say something positive about the person being gossiped about. Or there's a good one. Here's a great question. When you're in a conversation where somebody's slandering somebody else, you want to stop the conversation, here's how you do it. You say, have you talked to them about this? Well, no. They'd get upset if I talked to them about it. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you want to talk to them about it. Okay, I'm just giving you a few thoughts. This is Bible stuff. We're just moving on. Okay, ooh, this is a tough one. If you've got to get up and pee, now's the time because you don't want to hear this one. <laughs> Understand how God feels about slander and gossip. This is probably the most terrifying scripture in the entire Bible. You ready for it? This is it. Proverbs 6, starting at verse 16. It doesn't go to 35, but it's just starting at verse 16. There are six things... The Lord hates seven that are detestable to him. Check this out. 
haughty eyes, that's proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Okay, here's the question. How many of you think a gossip can be characterized by all seven of those? How many want to do what the Lord finds detestable? Anybody? Any takers on that one? No. No. This is the most terrifying scripture in the whole Bible. I'm not even kidding you. This one scares me. Because I have to weigh my conversations continually against it. You say, well, Pastor Greg, they did that to me. It's not a lie. Maybe it's mostly true, but is there maybe something else that you don't know? How many have ever gotten in an argument with your spouse and you thought you were right this time? One of the rare moments in history when you are sure your spouse is wrong. Anybody else ever do that? And I'm like, I swear this time, God Almighty stands with me. My wife is wrong. And then she talks. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I didn't quite get that right. Anybody else ever been there? Thank you, six, four of us. Okay, thank you, Jesus. You're affirming me. Okay, I'm giving you like, I'm throwing steaks and I'm not carving them. I'm not making them bite-sized today. You're going to have to go and carve them yourself. Here's the last one. Okay, oh my goodness, this is a tough one. Choose not to do the devil's work for him. Galatians, or sorry, Revelations 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of the brethren is sister and who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The enemy used to accuse us before God because he had the law. He had the law that all of us used to violate. And he would say, they broke the law. They broke the law. They broke the law. Judge them, judge them, judge them, judge them. But now Jesus has paid for that. He's removed us from under the law and he's put us under grace so the enemy cannot accuse us before God anymore. Amen? You're in Christ. (laughs) The devil points at you, say, look at Jesus. I'm in him. He picked me. I wouldn't have picked me, but he picked me. Amen? So if the devil's been thrown down and he can't accuse us before God, who is accusing us and others to each other? We are. We're accusing the body of Christ like they were accusing Paul in this story. They were accusing and saying slanderous things, things that weren't fully true. God is saying, don't be an accuser of the brethren. Don't do the devil's work for him. Amen? Amen? Okay. Well, here's a couple ending thoughts. Where might God be trying to temper our zeal? 
Proverbs 19.2 says, Even zeal is no good without knowledge. And he who hurries his footsteps misses the mark. Acts rashly, another version says, and hastily towards sin. Where might we need to stop giving a place to slander or gossip and stop perpetuating it about others? Church, when you talk about people in the body of Christ, you are talking about the bride of Christ. You are talking about people that God has chosen. Amen. Be very careful. That's why the Bible says, go to that person if they've sinned against you. Go to them. Make amends. Talk to them about those things. Not talk about them. Well, this was a heavy sermon. Lots of stuff for you to weigh. Amen? Where might you be overzealous right now and hanging on to things that God is saying hang on to me and hang on to the gospel. Where might you be perpetuating slander or gossip? And God wants to deal with that in your life. Amen? Thanks for joining us today. For more on our messages or information about our ministries, you can visit tfhchurch.ca. We hope you have a great week.